Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. The Cutting Room is a part of the podcast section of The Art of the Guillotine. Each week, The Cutting Room visits editors in their cutting rooms, where they discuss their experiences and techniques. I'd like to remind our audience to join our email list for weekly updates and the chance to win monthly prizes. At Art of the Guillotine, we are also starting something new. We want you, the listener, to send us what you consider the greatest film ever edited. Just submit it via email to us at info at artoftheguillotine.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Cutting Room. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes by searching The Cutting Room. Our list of the greatest films ever edited has continued to grow and includes films such as Battleship Potemkin, The Godfather, and Apocalypse Now. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Alan Heim. Alan won an Oscar for his work on All That Jazz and was nominated for his work on Network, the classic film directed by Sidney Lumet. Since establishing himself as a force in the editing world, Alan has become a champion for young editors and an advocate for the education and development of their technique and artistry. He has also produced the film The Cutting Edge, The Magic of Movie Editing, a movie I highly recommend. Can you tell me how you started your career? Because you started in sound. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, well, I've always been interested in, in movies. When I was a kid, uh, I went to movies a lot in the Bronx. There were five movie houses within walking distance of my house. And um, I never imagined I would actually make movies. It was like as if you're, you know, if you want to design cars, you sort of go to Detroit. And here, I thought they made movies in Hollywood, and I never had any real thought about going to Hollywood. So I, um, I went to film school. I discovered a film school at the City College uh, of New York. Um, and I went to film school. I was the only student in the day session at the film school for my last two terms. So I took my courses at night, which was valuable in a way because I was working with... Uh, professionals or at least people who really wanted to be professional in the field as opposed to just students, which is okay too. Anyway, a guy who was one of the students, the head of the school liked my first film. It's really primitive, but um, he liked it very much and he recommended me for a summer job and I was sort of uh, carrying tripods and cameras all over the midsummer New York State forests and uh, for sandwiches. But then the guy offered me a job, the same one who hired me offered me a job um, in a, an editing facility. They uh, did sound effects mostly, some music editing out of libraries. And I worked there for uh, a while, Saturdays, and you know, just reconstituting film. And it seems archaic to talk about film, but that's where we learned. And um, eventually, through that, I became a sound effects editor and a, an assistant to a music editor. I was never really a picture editor uh, at all, uh, an assistant picture editor at all. Um, sprang full-blown from Sidney Lumet's mind. Uh, anyway, when I had done a couple of films for Sidney Lumet, and I was pretty tired of being a sound effects editor, so I, um, I was looking to become a picture editor. And then I was asked to do the sound effects uh, for the Mel Brooks's film, The Producers, the original one. And um, 
while I was doing that, the editor quit. Uh, he wrote about it in his book, When the Shooting Stops, which I highly recommend. Ralph Rosenblum, a brilliant editor, hated the work. Uh, at a certain point, so I took over that film, and it was mostly cut, but there was one section uh, about a third of the way in when the producer signed the uh, writer to the contract, and that was just not playing, and Mel um, wanted to work with me, and I said, you know, why don't I take a look at it and, and edit it myself and see, you know, what's there. I don't even know what the material is, so he said, okay, and I did. And in two days, I had found a completely different scene. His scene was all done in the master. Um, I found close-ups, two shots, all sorts of things to change the rhythm of the scene. And I discovered as I was editing it that the Ralph Rosenblum had basically made the same edit I was making. I could find his splice marks, and it was all reconstituted, but I could find his cuts. I was a little different in the rhythm, uh, you know, third of a second here or there, but... Uh, when the film was um, shown to a cast and crew audience, the audience laughed so hard at that sequence, which nobody had laughed at before. I said, boy, this is wonderful. I can take this stuff and I can, I mean, stuff that's not working and I can make people laugh and, and you know, this is a great field. I better stick with it. And about that time, Sid Dilomet asked me to, uh, to do his next film. So I did, and uh, did a couple of films for Sydney. Somehow I got connected with, um, did some television, and got connected with the producer of Godspell, and he asked me if I would edit that movie, and uh, though I initially hated the show, I did agree to do it, because I'm not completely insane. And I had a great time, and it was an interesting movie, which for many years was completely unavailable, uh, until about five years ago, I think, when they finally issued it again on CD. It was never issued on D CD or DVD. You bring up two things there. There's the Sidney Lumet, and there's the musical. Regarding the musical All That Jazz, it comes at a very unique time. It was prior to MTV, but it comes just after the major musical era. How did you come up with the structure for this film? because it has a very interesting approach to it. I, I'm now trying to remember the time frame exactly. And what I think happened was, because I had a background as a music editor, though I'm not a musician, I can keep time very well, and I also can make, uh, you know, I, can, I used to be able to do an enormous amount of, I could, I could put a lot of flexibility into a music cue. Um, and nowadays it's much easier to do on Final Cut Pro where you can separate things. And In those days you basically were cutting with a piece of film, piece of soundtrack. And um, so I was able to work with music and a producer I knew from television was producing a show for Bob Fosse called Liza with a Z, which was a one hour live filming with nine cameras um, in a uh, theater, a beautiful little theater uh, off on Broadway. And it was um, pretty spectacular. Anyway, I, I, I met with Fosse. Cabaret had just been released, and I hadn't seen it yet. I met with Fosse at a dance studio. I absolutely loved what was going on. I mean, 
dancers hurling themselves, you know, in a room no bigger than, than this meeting room. Dancers flying around the room and people pulling at Fosse's coat all the time. And we worked in a small interview in there and I didn't get a lot of enthusiasm. But I went home and I said to my wife, I gotta go see Cabaret, I must go see Cabaret. And that night I went to see it and I was dazzled. And I said, I prayed to get that movie, uh, Lies with a Z, and I did. So we started working on it. There were actually nine cameras in 16 millimeter plus three others. We shot a, a half a day of inserts. And uh, with no slates, it was an interesting problem. I had a great assistant. And until the very end of the movie, she was still syncing up the occasional snippet of film. We made a great show. It won Emmys. Um, it was a year that Fosse won an Emmy, uh, an Oscar, and a Tony. So um, I was now connected with Bob Fosse. And when he did Lenny, he, uh, which was pretty closely after that, I think I probably did Godspell after I did Eliza with a Z. Um, and I brought whatever techniques um, we had worked out on, on Lies With a Z, I, I brought those to the editing of Godspell. And I sort of have been doing something like that ever since, um, editing for the frame. A lot of uh, the older dance movies, they used to show a dancer like Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, full body, but Fosse, shot with the intention of making the frame and the parts of the dancers part of the flow. So that's where the MTV thing comes out of, I think. I have been accused of, of doing MTV style editing. It was not intentional. It just, I, I've always, even when I was a sound effects editor, people had said to me, watch that cut, look at that cut. And I would say, why? What, what's so wonderful about this cut? And he'd say, look how the movement of the fork in this person's hand, when you go to the other side of the table, the movement is picked up by something else swinging you back to the other side of the screen. So I learned how to move the audience's eye around in the frame, which I think is tremendously important. And uh, so I did that. And then Fosse asked me to do Lenny right after that. And it was interesting, he wanted to do that. He could have done anything after winning the Tony, the Emmy, and the Oscar. Um, and he wanted to do Lenny, which was a Broadway play. And um, it was just a great experience. We, when he came into the cutting room, we both realized that uh, the performance uh, in particular, well, I don't think Dustin will beat me up at this age. Uh, Dustin, who was a terrific actor, but I think he had only done one or two movies. Well, he had certainly done um, uh, Midnight Cowboy, and he had done, um, yeah, the film with Mrs. Robinson. And, and he uh, he wanted to be let into the cutting room during the shooting, and you know, I, I would meet him in the hallway of the hotel we were cutting in and living in, and he said, can I see something? Can I? And I said, no, I'm sorry. You just and in a biography of Fosse published after his death, Lenny uh, Dustin was quoted as saying, Fosse never let me into the cutting room and every director I've worked with since has paid for that. And it's true, Dustin gets very involved in post-production, or tries to. Anyway, um, 
we did that film. We discovered the form of it in the cutting room. Dustin's performance, because he's a, an actor, and by nature, actors don't like to be disliked. They really don't. He always tried to soften the performance he was giving as the comic, as Lenny Bruce on the stage. So we had to put an edge to it. We looked at the performance. It was lying there flat. And we decided that if we restructured the performances and interwove them uh, much more with the uh, things that were happening in the character's life, everything came alive. So we did. And suddenly the movie was just wildly uh, exciting. And there's a sequence in it, and I guess I've wandered off musicals, but there's a sequence in it that um, after so much editing, near the end of the movie when Dustin gets uh, arrested, when Lonnie gets arrested in Chicago, there's a sequence that's over six minutes long and it's done in a long shot from the back of the nightclub. And he looks like a specimen on a microscope stage. He's completely bombing, he's stoned out of his mind. And it's the only time in the movie we really gave him um, an uncut sequence. And people say, why, why did you do it then? And there were two reasons. One, and there are often two reasons when you edit. I mean, there, there's often the, the purely technical reason. In this case, the scenes had been covered just the way the other stuff was, close-ups, long shots, medium shots, behind the actor. But a lot of the material had been um, charged with static electricity because we were shooting in air-conditioned rooms and taking them out to change in the, um, in the trucks, taking the film cans out to change. So in the middle of performances, in the middle of shots, these big uh, sheets of lightning, I don't know how else to describe it, these big, uh, you know, distortions, visual distortions came up on the screen. So we tried, and we made sort of a sequence, but it, it didn't really play like the other stuff. We were forced into choosing takes we didn't like. And we also felt Dustin was so good, he deserved the sequence. He really deserved it. You mentioned Sidney Lumet, and he's a very hands-on director, and I was wondering, how did you work with him? Because most likely he wanted a hands-on approach. When Sidney approached me, and I had, I had done sound effects for Sidney on at least two movies, no, three, three. The Pawnbroker, I met Sidney once. Sidney never came to the mix. He, in those days, Sidney used to do two films every three years, or is it three films every two years? A lot of films. He did them on budget. He did them on schedule. Studios loved them. Some of them made money, some didn't. Some were artistic successes, some weren't. Sidney worked. I think if you look up his uh, listing, he's probably directed 60 movies, not counting television and other things. And uh, Sidney, he asked me uh, after I did a comedy called Bye Bye Braverman, I did the group, as a sound effects editor, and then Bye Bye Braverman. It was released, I think, yeah, that was the title. Um, and he didn't like his editor, who's a good friend of mine, and you know, he just didn't like his editor. And he asked me if I would edit his next movie, and I said, sure. Knowing what I was getting into, I mean, I knew Sidney would be telling me exactly what to do. 
at the same time, I was green. I mean, I, I'd done a few documentaries. I had done some sequences. I had worked on the producers for that short sequence, but um, it was a great out learning opportunity for me. So I did uh, The Seagull, which uh, I didn't cut a frame of film on that until Sydney. I had gone to Sweden with him just to keep things in order. And when I came back, we uh, he stood over my shoulder. He told me exactly where to make cuts. We finished a two-hour and 14-minute cut in a few days. He, he comes out of television, so he's used to directing camera A, camera B, camera A, camera C, you know, and he directs on the fly. When we did network in Toronto, uh, the television technicians who were uh, operating the equipment in the real booth that we were filming in, they couldn't believe this guy uh, because he had done so much in live television apart from being an actor as a kid. I mean, uh, he uh, he's a remarkably talented guy. Anyway, so the, I did two films for Sydney, and I really, then I went and did the 12 chairs for Mel Brooks in uh, Yugoslavia. And I left the finishing of the second movie, which was uh, to an early, no, it was, yeah, Bloodkin. Had many different titles. Um, I left the finishing of that to Craig. We were pretty much finished, but Sydney sort of didn't forgive me for that. And I did Mel's movie, and I came back, and um, a little while after that, I got a call from Sydney asking me if I would do network. And I was terrified that he was going to be wanting to be over my shoulder. But in between, he had done um, Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, both of which were edited by Dee Dee Allen. And uh, those of us who were on the fringes of filmmaking in New York, sound editors, assistants, we were all wondering what would happen when Sydney, an immovable force, met Dee Dee, an irresistible object. Well, it turns out that the schedule was such that uh, Sydney had to let Dee Dee cut the movie. And she did. And uh, both films are really wonderful films, beautifully edited. They have a completely different rhythm than most of Sydney's movies. Um, and uh, this, it was the same with networks. Dee Dee was not available to my good fortune. Patty Chayefsky, who wrote and would produce Network, was a best friends of Bob Fosse. Fosse suggested that I would do well on it. And I had an absolutely great time. Sydney did not get involved barely for a minute. Uh, we were finished. I showed them a cut, a finished cut, five days after um, they finished shooting. We spent another couple of days taking out material that clearly meant to be taken out, people walking around and shoe leather stuff. And, um, you know, the film got 12 Academy Award nominations. Um, and it, I never thought it was a particularly well-edited film because it was very simple for me. Sidney does not shoot a lot of footage. He shoots like a television director. He shoots sometimes only one take. He'll print one take, and it'll be take one. Um, for Sidney to go five takes would be a lot. Interesting because Sidney comes at the end of the studio system, and in his book he talks about working with Margaret Booth. He says that he was... He mentions that no one was allowed into the editing room till the final screening. 
How do you think this affected your editing relationship with Sydney? Well, you know, I don't know. I I actually had an experience with Sydney and Margaret Booth. When I was in Sweden doing the Seagull, they sent Sydney a version of, of of the film, I believe, called The Appointment with Omar Sharif and Anouk Ameh. And we screened it after dailies, and Sydney invited all of the crew. Mostly, it was mostly a British crew. And about 45 minutes into the film, there was a spectacular helicopter shot, starting with a close-up of Anouk Ameh and Omar Sharif kissing. And we know they've gone to an island uh, for a picnic. And it starts with a gigantic full-screen close-up of both their heads coming together. They kiss. The camera begins to pull back. And you think, oh, it's on tracks or dolly. Or and then it begins to go up and up and up. And you realize you see the whole island, first the fields around them, then the whole island with the Mediterranean around it. Spectacular shot. Problem was, everybody in the audience started to get up because they thought it was the end of the movie. And I looked at my watch, and it was 45 minutes into the film. Film was deadly dull. And Sidney said he wanted to take a crack at making it better. I don't know who edited it. I have no idea who edited it. But I do know that Margaret Booth in California was editing a version and then Sydney edited with me edited a version and we liked the version we had made and then we got hers which was very different and I believe two versions were released one in Europe one in the United States but Margaret uh, whom I'd met but really near the end of her career she was she was a, a rule unto herself the studios well, you know, the, the studio system lent itself to that kind of thing. Directors were hired hands like everybody else. Um, they were under contract to the studios, but uh, if the studio didn't want to give them a film, they couldn't go somewhere else and get a film. And editors were on staff, and the editors had a certain number of days to turn out what was, in effect, a product. Then you'd screen it, you'd take notes, make some changes, and it was a finish. With 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 uh, Bob Fosse, I've worked as long as fourteen months on a movie. A lot different than than a few weeks. Well, talking about network, you mentioned your approach on this film was different with Sydney because he wasn't in the editing room. In the scene where Peter Finch walks in and says he's mad as hell, you cut between the various areas, the you know the people in the streets, the executives. How did you approach the scene? Well, let me go back. Let me go back a little bit. Um, Sydney rehearsed as actors a couple of weeks. The first film I did for Sydney, I'm sorry, the second film I did for Sydney, um, The Seven Descents of Myrtle, Blood Kin, whatever, it was from a Tennessee Williams play. The script was written by Gore Vidal, the shooting script. Warner Brothers had bought the play. As I say, I digress. Warner Brothers had bought the play um, um, before it was opened on Broadway, and it got killed on Broadway. It was a very badly received play. Um, so 
here I was really on the first film I was ever on from the very beginning. And I was going to rehearsal studios down on the Lower East Side. And first you have a table reading, like a real play. The actors are sitting around. James Coburn, um, um, Lynn Redgrave, um, Robert Hooks, Bobby Hooks. And um, so first you have that. Then uh, the room is taped off to indicate where couches are, where chairs are, where the table is. And the actors begin to walk around with the script in their hand while they're memorizing the script. But Sydney's blocking out shots. So we spent two weeks at that, having you know sandwiches sent up from Ratner's downstairs. And I was dazzled. I mean, the whole process is amazing. And people don't do that very much anymore. But so Sydney comes to the set prepared. The actors come prepared. They know their lines. Um, so everything is, is, if I said automatic, that wouldn't be true, but it's pretty much automatic. And so on network, the performances were splendid, absolutely splendid. And when the film was finished, I thought that uh, there would be several acting nominations. I thought Patty Chayefsky would get a nomination. Um, I thought maybe Sydney would get a nomination for Best Picture. Um, the two surprises to me were cinematography and editing um, as nominations. Um, Sydney, the process, yeah, let's talk about the process for a minute, another digression. Um, the process of editing on film was a time-consuming process. Um, I'll go through it quickly. You shot the film on Monday. You saw the, the film went into the lab Monday night. You got the film Tuesday morning. Then the film had to be screened, sometimes with directors, sometimes not. You had to make sure the sync was correct, so always the editor screened it first. Um, then it, the film had to be numbered, both picture and sound had to be numbered individually and sent out. So you couldn't really start cutting a scene, even if it were complete. You couldn't start cutting the scene until Wednesday of that week. So you're already a couple of days behind. Nowadays, uh, you know, the film comes out of the lab, is printed, processed the next morning. I could be cutting the scene in the afternoon before the director even sees it at night, if they see it at night. So then while you're cutting on film, um, you've got to be winding this film back and forth and then moving it back and forth. And I cut on movieolas, upright movieolas except for a few movies that I did on flatbed editing tables, Steenbecks and Kems. So you'd be working, you'd be hanging up. It was nonlinear, very nonlinear. You'd pick the pieces you wanted, you'd put them on a barrel, uh, pins in a barrel, and then you'd put them off, take a quick look at them, splice them together in the way you had imagined. If you didn't like it, for whatever reason, you'd pretty much have to put the stuff back into dailies form. Um, if you lost a piece of film in the bottom of the barrel, that could be oh, a couple of hours trying to find it. Um, when, you, uh, when our work print was finished, they often had little pieces of black, lots of little pieces of black, where you were extending things or lengthening things and you no longer had that piece of film handy. We had a whole box that we used to call things like cutlets, which were, you know, 
things that didn't quite connect with anything. I mean, two frame pieces, half a frame from scene. You know, for, we knew what reels they were from, but not from necessarily the uh, the picture. Now, all of this can be done instantly. Anyway, Sydney is a guy with tremendous energy, tremendous energy, and it would make him nuts when you were looking for a trim, when you had to dig up something. So as fast as you worked, it was never fast enough for Sydney. He took to the montage system. There was a guy in New York who had a montage, and Sydney worked with him, uh, Andy Monsheen was his name, is his name, he's a fine editor. But he bought a montage system, and he started working with Sydney. Sydney loved it. Because as, as clunky as it was, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but as, as clunky as it was, it was, a lot faster than uh, it was. It was assistant intensive. Assistants had to stay all night to get things ready, but uh, you could find stuff. You wouldn't lose them. Shuttles, yeah. yeah, shuttles. The Ediflex tried it. It was a horrible system. I tried cutting on that. It was just horrible. It was not. A lot of the systems you come out of uh, electronics, and a lot of the early systems were not editor friendly. They were electronic friendly. Well, there's a couple of things I'd like to talk to you about there. Nowadays, there's not enough time to view the rushes with the director. What kind of effect does that have with cutting? Usually, when I used to sit next to the director, uh, as I say, I, uh, most editors would see the dailies first. Um, in, the, you know, in the middle of the day, sometime, whenever they were ready, you'd start screening dailies. So... I would make notes, and I still do make notes on which takes I prefer, which lines I prefer for certain takes. And I would know if the director was leaning over to me and saying, I like this take a lot, and I'd hated it. I'd know I was in trouble. Now, you don't get a lot of comment. A shooting day is very grueling. Um, there are some people who like to come to dailies, but last couple of films I did, I, I've had almost no um, no dailies per se. Certainly, the one I uh, did in Canada for HBO, we we didn't look at dailies. We looked. Uh, everybody had a disc. And, you know, I got my stuff. So I was well cut. Uh, by the time somebody came with an occasional note or two. What do you think about the technology and its effect on film editing? The cost of all the stuffs come down and with the internet and everything, what kind of effects do you think this is having? It's interesting because everything is shaking out. I think it's a very exciting time. Do I want to learn any more systems? Frankly, no. I mean, I, I learned the Lightworks. I learned the Avid. I'm not particularly interested in learning Final Cut Pro. I was hoping that the electronics, though I knew it was going to happen, I was hoping that it would never quite get complex enough to handle feature films. Because the early stuff could not. They could handle you know, enough material to do an act of a television show. But if you wanted to run them all together, you, you had like the CMX system, which did, the CBS, they did approach editors here and in New York for suggestions. But to do a scene, you had this, well, it was like going to an IBM place. I mean, they had, you had discs that were 16-inch discs, I think maybe 12. You had light pens. Um, the discs came in things like cake trays, like a computer, old-time old computer stuff. It was all very awkward. And I kept thinking, and Francis Coppola was talking about, uh, he was going to do one from, one from the Heart, and how he would be 
uh, in the theaters two days after we finished shooting the movie. Well, my father-in-law at the time, who was a businessman, he would send me articles from business publications about this is wonderful new technology that was coming, and I was out here laboring on a moviola somewhere uh, for one summer. And I knew that that film was months over schedule already, because the editing, to go back to your question, the editing is not a mechanical process. It never was a mechanical process. It's a mental process. It's how you tell the story the best way. So when you start looking at the material, you know, you look at my cut, my first cut, I have no, um, I have no stake in that first cut being the right cut. I just want to make it a better cut. I, I, I am obligated to show the director everything he shot. I mean, every scene has to be in the movie. When I say everything he shot, no, I make the choices of performance. I Do I go to this angle here, that angle there? But basically, the scene is as written. I rarely refuse to cut a scene. I've done it once or twice because the stuff was just so awful that I couldn't imagine. You know, drunk actors, actors who are supposed to be drunk who are actually stoned and bumbling through their performance just you know un unfocused and I had better things to do but um, the fact is that the process is a, is a thinking process you sit down I love the part where I sit down with the director and say let's make this better because I forget what film I did oh yeah no names but I did a film a while ago and uh, finished my cut showed it to the director he had been seeing cut material all along and he was, uh, he had done a couple of movies, not many. And he said, uh, so what do we do now? And I looked at him, my jaw dropped, and I said, we make it better. I mean, he really thought my two-hour version was good enough to go into a theater, and I, it was terrible. I mean, the film ended up, you know, the usual hour and a half, hour 40, but um, he didn't know what the next step was. There's a lot of people who, who don't understand. You know, it's such a political game, editing, too. It's you're interposing yourself between the director and his material. When you produced The Cutting Edge, how did you go about making the documentary about film editing? And as the producer, how did you feel having another editor work on your project? Okay, well, for one thing, I had a partner, Wendy Apple, who is credited as a director on the film, and in point of fact, she really was. I was working, um, editing movies. I don't even remember what the hell I was editing at the time. Possibly The Notebook, I was out of town. Um, she called me one day, right after an ACE meeting, and she said, would you guys be interested in doing a film about editing? And I said, yeah, let's go meet, talk to the ACE board. I was not the president at the time. I was just on the board. We had a meeting with the ACE board, and the general feeling, we had an idea of how to do the movie, which was get an editor and a director or a producer who work together and have the editor bring in the director or the producer. Because we know nobody's going to want to sit I mean, the average audience, and this was many for, well, we didn't even know for what at that point. 
We didn't have financing yet. But it was made for television, really. I wish we had gotten theatrical release, but it was made for television. And people are not going to sit around and watch a bunch of anonymous editors talk about editing. As it turns out, they will. But mostly they'll be film students. You're not going to, you know, Warner Brothers had a quarter of a million dollars in. Um, NHK, the Japanese people, they were intrigued by the fact that we were doing it in high def. And they put money into it, and um, somebody else put money into it. So, uh, you know, we, we needed a hook, and that was our hook. But a lot of the editors at the board meeting that night said, well, editors will never talk about editing. They'll never tell any secrets. We're afraid we won't get hired again. I said, I don't think so. I think we really would like to explain how it is we do it. There was a certain amount of... Um, I mean, most people don't want to tell the tales out of school. They're more fun. But uh, they're not the stuff that uh, is going to get you hired again. But um, a good editing story, it turns out, can kind of last. Anyway, we went out, uh, Wendy and I went out, and we wined and dined the people in charge of clips at the studios. We took them to whatever meal they wanted to be taken to. Some passed, some didn't. We presented our case, and because of the backing of Ace... Uh, they were able to give us 300 film clips, all told, something more than that. Um, we were able, I don't think anybody's going to do a film like that again because the studios have changed. They want everything to be a cash flow. And um, in fact, the head of Paramount licensing uh, changed. He retired. Whoever, whoever gave us our deal retired. And for some reason, we couldn't find the paperwork on it. And the new guy said, well, why should we give you this stuff for nothing? Because everybody else is. I mean, you know, this, Warner's is giving us this stuff. Universal is giving us clips. And my partner went into a panic. said, we've got to recut the movie, take all the Paramount stuff out. I said, we can't. It's too good. Um, and eventually, we went back to them. And uh, Tina Hirsch, who was the president of ACE at that time, she had a meeting with the guy, and he said, well, why is it you people want to make a film that's not, not going to make a profit? We said, no, it's for educational purposes. I mean, if we make some money on it, that's fine, but no, we want, to, we want this to teach people. We don't care about the rest. No. So that, that's great. Thank you very much. No. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'd like to thank Alan Heim for taking the time to share his experiences with us. I'd also like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. Remember to join our email list and also to submit your suggestions for the greatest film ever edited via our email, info at artoftheguillotine.com. You can also use the email address to contact us with questions about the show or just general comments. This interview was recorded with the help of the American Cinema Editors and Jenny McCormick. It was recorded in Los Angeles during Edit Fest on August 8th, 2008. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>